to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. And this is God's word. They were saying, we, we can't, uh, you know, let anything happen to poor Robin. And so eventually uh, we got back to the shore. But I remember that I was preparing for this. I, was, I, I remember vividly the emotions I was experiencing. Utter dread. It was excruciating. And I felt desperate. And I put a note here. I don't know if I've ever felt that scared or desperate since then. Well, when I read Psalm 130, I think of a similar image for this psalmist. He is in deep waters seeking help from his God and from his Lord. And so we'll be looking at this psalm, Psalm 130, with four simple headings, since the psalm is divided into four stanzas, as we can call them, 
to help walk us through. And the headings, if you're taking notes, is a cry for mercy, and I'll repeat these throughout the sermon. A cry for mercy, number two, the grace of forgiveness. Number three, waiting for the Lord, and finally, hope for others. That's how I'm gonna try to organize the thoughts here. And each of the stanzas they ha has two verses, and the first one paints the picture of being crushed. He cries out to the Lord, pleading for mercy. If you look at your Bibles again, the first two verses, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. Again, the heading is a cry for mercy, and I, I really want to pause here to capture the urgent, desperate situation of the psalmist. As we've been going through the Psalms all month, we must re be reminded that those who seek refuge are in a desperate state. For instance, when you think of refugees across the world looking for safety and, and sanctuary and protection from really, when you hear the stories, truly horrible circumstances, you could even think about Ukraine and all the citizens right now. There is a desperation behind that. And, of, and so, of course, when you see the words, I'm seeking refuge or a, a, a psalm of refuge, it's not a casual thing or endeavor. So as the psalmist is seeking refuge in Almighty God, let us imagine then the urgent and the emotional mood here. Now, if you look at verse 1, the Old Testament uses depths, and we translate it in English, as an allusion to being at the bottom of a pit, or like we described earlier, stuck in deep waters. The emotion is raw, and he is in great distress. He is not saying, oh, God, I'm annoyed. Sometimes we wake up 6.37, some of you guys are getting your kids ready, and you're just thinking about work, or you think about family life, or some friendships, and you're saying, oh, and you think about a situation, and you're saying, oh, God, I'm just so annoyed. That's just, it's kind of bothering me. Or I'm a little bit stressed out with life. That's not Psalm 130. He's not simply frustrated or annoyed. He's in the pit, or he is figuratively drowning. Yet, what does he do? He yet still is approaching God. He is not running away. He's not turning away to other things or false gods or idols that could never satisfy, but he turns and approaches God in this desperation. And notice that he focuses on that phrase, the mercy of, of God. Mercy, again, is being given what is opposite of what you actually deserve. God restrains what we deserve out of his forbearance and forgiveness and gives us the opposite. Perhaps the psalmist realized that he does not deserve God's mercy in all aspects. I, I, I thought this was really helpful reminder as I was preparing for this, in all aspects. Some of us, we think about mercy and grace only related to salvation and regeneration and eternal life, which is all, of course, accurate. But God's mercy expands to everything. So the psalmist knows you are merciful in hearing the prayer or even being provided refuge in time of need. He realizes to, to be, even to be heard is merciful. Have you pondered that? Now, we have free access to God. We could pray if we could humanly withstand 24-7, just never sleeping and always praying. God, God will hear us. 
And so I think sometimes we take it for granted that God should listen to us in our cries of desperation. But he is merciful. And we, we should recognize that and give thanks to God for that. We shouldn't assume that God only hears us when we literally, quote, quote cry out. But the emphasis of crying out to God pictures this, the state the psalmist is in. Again, urgent, desperate dependence. And so, friends, whether that be your soul crying out in quiet reflection or literally crying out audibly to him is not the main focus of the psalm. To illustrate that, you know, we all come from different backgrounds. Some of us even grew up in the church here, but not everyone did, of course, nor had a Christian upbringing or even a religious upbringing here. And depending, though, on what kind of church you land at, you will be exposed to certain styles of prayer. Some churches pray silently. Some pray out loud simultaneously. The Korean church I grew up at, a prayer meeting was a very audible experience. Everyone prayed out loud at the same time. I am now way more used to and prefer quiet prayers in a room together and one person at a time lifting up a prayer. But the point is there are a variety of ways to pray, individually and corporately. None are worse or better than others, as long as the heart is actually praying. Meaning you could be crying out to God gibberish and not really have your heart set on anything, just mindless noise. Or you could be praying silently and half asleep or thinking about something completely other than God. And so for today's psalmist, the audible crying out of this man was a reflection. This is what is key. Whatever he was doing, either praying silently or crying out, it was a reflection of what was truly happening in his heart. But we should note, well, don't be so stressed or fraught with praying perfectly. There is grace for us there. Because, friends, again, how merciful God is that he hears us only because of the Son, only because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so whether we belt out super loud prayers of desperation to quiet prayers of little strength and fatigue, as that been you this past week, We have access to the mercy of God. And so let your spirit cry out then for this mercy. So that was number one, a cry for mercy. But then he moves to the next two verses, verse 3 through 4, and the heading is the grace of forgiveness. Look at your Bibles in verse 3 through 4. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, in these two verses, the psalmist realized there's no need to attempt to stand on his own merits. That would be a futile exercise. He realizes the depth of his own numerous sins listed there as iniquities here. And the plight of his own soul, if there was to be no forgiveness for the piling up of these sins. And so truly, if God would base our acceptance and forgiveness based on the amount of sin in our lives... We say amen with the psalmist and say, who could then stand? Nobody. That's why I inserted that New Testament reading from Romans 3.10. None is righteous. No, not even one. Several years ago, I went to this week-long church planting assessment center through the PCA in Georgia. 
uh, because I was pondering and discerning is, is church planting in, in my future. And it was one of the most intense things I've ever been through. There was about 25 or 30 of us. We were all wondering if we would pass the assessment at the end of the week of being considered a good fit for church planting in the future. Spiritually, psychologically, it was very intense. They brought in professional counselors. They brought in about 10 seasoned church planters and pastors to pretty much, I don't, I don't think I'm exaggerating here, pretty much nitpick their way through every inch of our profile and life. Imagine just being judged for a week and watched over every interaction, makeshift exercise, or they would have a group discussion, we would preach, social skills. And so they were just in the back of the room, just with a clipboard, taking notes about every, almost every interaction. But on the first day, the, the main assessor stood up there and said, hey, don't, don't freak out, don't worry too much, because there's a lot of rumors over the years about how intense these assessors were. And he said, guys, you might have heard that we put secret cameras in your hotel room. What we're not doing that, we don't go that far. But there was one really funny story that they shared. Years ago, a person attending the assessment center for that week was at the hotel's computer lounge doing some work, and in comes an older lady dressed in a hospital gown. And quickly, she sat by him, started to just do some friendly chatting. And the man started telling her why he was there that week, and then for some reason, it dawned on him, this was all a setup. The assessor planted an actor to come in to see if he had the right evangelistic fervor and skill to talk to this lady, and the older lady actually had a port sticking out of her arm. And the man thought, man, they're going all out for this one. So he kept talking to her. He brought up the gospel and tried to lead her to Christ right there and then. Well, they found out the next day that this woman had wandered off from a nearby hospital, and she was just kind of roaming the streets and just walked in. And the assessors then shared with us, don't worry, we don't go that far to set you up. And we all <laughs> had a good laugh about that. I only bring that story up because what if you lived your whole life, brothers and sisters, thinking if I don't live perfectly, if I mess up just in the slightest way, I won't find the forgiveness of God, as if I'm continually being assessed with a clipboard. Am I forgivable or not? If God kept track of every sin so as to use that as a pass-fail for us, the psalmist said, who could indeed stand? And so that's what makes the final finished work of the atoning sacrifice of the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, that much more remarkable because Christ had to pay the penalty of our collective stack of sins, every single last one, so that we could find forgiveness in him. Some of you are new to the faith. You've told me. Or some of you have wandered for many years, maybe decades, and are coming back to the Lord. Some of you might be streaming for the first time ever of a church service. Yes, this is the gospel. That Christ, when he paid for your sins on the cross, was for every last single one. That's why the psalmist is so relieved especially during his state of urgency. I, I am in the deep waters, and then you go to the next stand of the three and four, 
Oh, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared, revered, obeyed. And this seems to bring immediate comfort as he remembers that you could almost picture a life buoy pulling him out of ominous waters to safety. That actually happened to me in Florida. I think it was Daytona Beach or one of the beaches there on the East Coast. And we were on boogie boards or whatever those are called, not surfboards, but um, the ones where you can kind of paddle out and kind of ride back and the tides change. I didn't learn my lesson from fourth grade and we were stuck there and we were <laughs> frantically and we were like, we got this, we got this, but we wouldn't move. It, it was impossible. And then all of a sudden, these five huge guys with life buoys come and expertly swim out to us. They scream at us, why are you out here so far? I was like, I don't know. And uh, they grabbed us and got us to safety. And it was so embarrassing that they were high-fiving each other. And they're like, yeah, we did it. And we were like, oh, thank you. And we, 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 walk, we walked back to our towels, which was we were kind of drifted away. And, there was about 200 people lined up seeing what happened and us three guys had our heads down in shame as we walked that walk of shame. But oh, I, no matter what the embarrassment was, friends, oh, when they came and when they said, hold on to this, oh, all my fears were allayed. You see, this is what brought comfort to the psalmist, what the Old Testament believers believed in of course, was for, in the future, a coming Messiah to redeem them, wash them of their sins completely. Their faith believed in the once-for-all atoning sacrifice of the one to come, and so they were forgiven through faith in the one, the Messiah. It's the same thing for us, except our faith believes in the atoning sacrifice already accomplished some 2,000 years ago through Christ. This is the picture of grace, Grace is God's unmerited favor towards us, and this psalmist is profoundly cognizant of this in his despair. So that's the grace of forgiveness. Now to our third stanza and point, waiting for the Lord, verse five through six, one of my favorite portions of any psalm. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You see, in verses 5 through 6, the psalmist eagerly pivots to waiting on the Lord for deliverance. Whatever was ailing the psalmist, perhaps his overwhelming guilt of sin, perhaps it's like you, sorrows of life or troubling circumstances or perhaps even enemies at his doorstep, he is eager to embrace the hope that comes from the word of God, verse 5. And so he's seeking refuge and desires to wait on the Lord by finding hope in his word. So much so that he is fully confident that he will be delivered. What, what is the illusion here in verse 6? Just as the sun will eventually come up in the morning for exhausted, weary watchmen. He said it will come. Why were ancient watchmen so wearied and desperate for the morning? Scholars note that watchmen who stood on guard all through the night on top of the city walls had the serious duty to keep a steady eye out for any possible invaders approaching them. Can you imagine the weight of that stress? Hey, we're going to go to sleep now, uh, some 5,000 people. You 10 men, hopefully you can stay awake because if you don't, we're all, we're all going to perish. So no stress, but uh, have a good night. We're, we're, we're going to go to sleep now. Can you imagine that? 
the serious duty to keep the steady eye. Can you imagine that stress that all the lives of the men, women, and children were at stake and to see out in the abyss just darkness? We can then easily imagine the relief of the watchman said, there it is, there it is. The sun is finally peeking through. And so in the midst of our current plight, our troubling circumstance, perhaps we can learn this critical lesson on waiting for the Lord for help. Sure, the long hours of the quote-unquote dark night of the soul can be overwhelming, crippling even, but spiritual deliverance and restoration will surely come to those who trust in him, who find their refuge in him. I say that pastorally because I know some of you here, you barely even got through the doors today probably. You woke up and said, today is not the day that I want to go and worship my God. I am just overwhelmed with everything in life. And I, how foolish of it, how foolish would it be if I, I just said, guys, just find refuge, it's all good. No, there is a waiting on the Lord. I'm not going to say you're going to walk out of these doors just feeling like a new person and just ready to take on all the challenges. It's going to take time, but you will find refuge in him, just like the sun coming up over the horizon. So don't give up, brothers and sisters. Don't give up. The phrase waiting on or waiting for the Lord has taken on a weird, super spiritual connotation over the years that I think is wrong. As in, quote, wait on the Lord. That means to go to some hidden cottage in the woods and just sit on the floor for days or stare out into the night sky and wait for a sign. It's a caricature, but some people think, oh, that's what it means to wait on the Lord. But waiting for the Lord in the Bible seems to be really simply meditating on the word and praying to God. You don't, you don't need to overcomplicate this. You don't need to overthink this. Just simply opening your Bibles and asking the Lord for help. But you know, we mentioned this last week. We know where to posture ourselves and to place ourselves before the, the Lord through his word and through prayer. Yet we sometimes use that as the last resort. But for this psalmist, he says, I, I go straight to your word to remind you of the hope I can have in you, almighty God, my refuge. You know, at this church or most churches, the most mature and spiritually weather-worn brothers or sisters in Christ are probably those that whenever something comes up in life, they'll wait for the Lord through prayer, through word, before they speak, before they make a big decision, before acting, before attempting to figure it all out on their own and so forth. The most mature season disciples here are those that say, okay, I'm gonna go home and wait for the Lord. I'm gonna go to prayer, I'm gonna study his word, and he's going to guide me all my days and steps waiting with the anticipation of a watchman for the morning, not waiting aimlessly as if I wonder what God's gonna do, but waiting specifically knowing that God will provide refuge. I'm not saying that's easy. I'm not saying that comes natural to us, it doesn't. But this is the sign of a mature view of life found in the scriptures, found from the psalmist. And so wait for the Lord in patience, eagerness, hopefulness, brothers and sisters. Now to our final heading, 
Number four, hope for others. If you look at your Bibles in verse seven through eight, O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. You see, the psalmist concludes with such confidence in the delivering hand of the Lord that he pleads with the people of God to also place their hope and trust in God Almighty. I love, I love the phrase plentiful redemption because of the picture of God's abundant grace and steadfast love. In verse 7, he's not saying, I don't know about you guys, but for me, that's all that matters. It's just about me. It's just about me finding refuge. No, there's hope for you too. And so if you've gone through a season of struggling and you found refuge in Christ, and then you, over coffee after service, hear of someone's plight, you should say, well, tough luck for them, but for me, it was great. No, you say, hey, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help you. I, I want to walk alongside of you. There's hope for you, too. Oh, you're struggling with this besetting sin, and you're ashamed, and you feel embarrassed, and you said, oh, I will never utter what I struggle with with other church members. You need to come alongside of that sister or brother and say, hey, there's hope for you too, not just me. And so as you wait on the Lord and he reminds you of his forgiveness and steadfast love, that just supernaturally and organically, the conviction to tell others who are feeling crushed under the weight of deep waters to say, I, I think you're trying to dig out of the hole yourself. Look to the Lord. And I think it takes a true friend to say that to someone who is struggling and close to despair. Isn't that what Paul reminds us of in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3 through 5? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Whereas we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Israel here can be defined as all those who truly believe in the promises of God. His work culminating in the work in the future of the Son, the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And for us the spiritual Israel, looking back again to the culminating work of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And we're comforted by God and his promises. We can then turn readily and expediently towards one another and just say, hey, you need a hope in the Lord. Preach this to yourself. Get out of your own head, as so many of us do. Preach this to yourself over and over. That hope is found only, and you, you underline it ten times, only in the Lord. Notice how the psalm is somewhat bookended. Then, with the word iniquities, in verse 3, who could stand if he marked our iniquities? To so the final verse in 8, he will redeem us from all our iniquities. The refuge is found in the context of understanding how our iniquities are finally dealt with, brothers and sisters. Not that we're perfectly 100% healthy physically. Not that our children are the most behaved out of all people and are just the brightest children on earth. Refuge is not unfounded if you get that promotion or you get into that school or you get straight A's and et cetera, et cetera. But refuge is founded in the context of understanding how our iniquities are finally dealt with. And so in conclusion then, oh, this term refuge is a concept most understood by people who are desperate, who are cognizant of their plight and ready to approach God in dependence for his deliverance, forgiveness, and redemption. 
People who do not seek refuge like me on that raft floating out to sea will say there's nothing wrong, everything is good, life is blissful, and not understanding the peril ahead of you. But those who are desperate, those who are willing and wanting, oh, they find in faith the refuge offered by our Redeemer. And so may this be on our hearts and minds as we seek to ask God to hear our prayers, deliver us from our fears, troubling situations. Oh, this week say, Lord, how could I tangibly and specifically and with all motivation from you, Lord, wait for you, wait for you, speak to us, oh Lord. Let's bow our heads and pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we need your strength as we come to grips and the reality of our weakness, as we come to grips in the reality of our corporate weakness, let us find refuge in you as we wait on you, as we cling to your promises and your word. When we are discouraged because of the world we live in, our own besetting sins or trying circumstances, may we remember you and your invitation to find refuge in your comforting presence. Thank you, God, for your grace, forgiveness, and mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.